you've got your Bible with you, I would ask you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Father, we ask this morning that you would be kind to us and that um, my bumbling and stumbling efforts would bear um, inordinate and extraordinary amount of fruit in the minds of your people that can only be attributed to your spirit teaching your people from your word. We confess and believe what the Bible says about itself, that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that that it goes out and accomplishes everything that you have purposed for it to do. And it doesn't return to you empty. And so um, if anything's going to happen today, Father, it's not because I'm a talented speaker or uh, an informed theologian. It is because your word and your spirit have come together in the minds of your people in this, the way that you have ordained. So, Father, do whatever it is that you would like to do this morning, and we lay ourselves open before you and invite you and say, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Well, at last, um, we come to consider the text of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 um, by themselves. And, and I just want to say by way of review, because I wanna, I'm trying to build a case, and there's a lot of things that the culture has challenged. And so we've got to deal with those issues in a, um, that are further back in order for the case to make sense to you. And so just by way of a brief review, I've attempted to make the case that the scriptures teach, first of all, very plainly, that men and women are both equal in Christ, and that God has instituted various hierarchies or relationships of unequal authority and power in different places in human society. In particular, the scripture mentions three, that God has instituted one of these hierarchies in the home, Uh, Second of all, there are hierarchies in the church. And third of all, there are also hierarchies which he has ordained in the civil realm of government where some people are responsible for leadership roles and some people are responsible to carry out the lawful commands 
of those who are in leadership. Next, I attempted to show you that this is not some kind of a fundamentally unjust thing, which is one of the things that our world says and has said since Karl Marx, that anytime you have somebody up here and somebody down here, the person down here is being exploited and the person up here is being abusive. It's just always that way, they say, okay? We would say no, absolutely not, that God has actually set these things up for his own purposes, and he's got very careful set of commands to each person in each role to help them do it in a way that it's healthy and good and effective for living out life in the world. And these hierarchies, these differences, are present among the unfallen angels. That's why you have something called a, an archangel. And then you have thrones and principalities and dominions and powers, which are widely understood. We're not told a lot about them, but they're widely understood to be various classes of angels, one above the, each one above the other. Um, we, we see this uh, among the persons of the Godhead. Indeed, this is the place where we see it the most clearly, what men and women are supposed to be like, because um, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal, just like men and women, and yet they relate to each other in an unequal fashion because they've chosen to. And the, so at the beginning of time, for instance, we in Reformed theology understand that there was a, a covenant behind all the covenants. It's called the covenant of redemption, where God decreeing and foreseeing the fall said, I got some people I want to save, and I want to bring to glory, and I want to bless, and I've got a certain number of them. I know them by name from before the foundation of the world. And God the Son says, oh, if you'll let me, I'll go and redeem them. And God says, I think that's a good idea. And God the Holy Spirit says, oh, um, I will go and I will apply the redemption of Jesus Christ to them at the time, Father, that you've decreed. And they'll, they'll go from darkness to light. They'll wake up and they'll be born again. And, and they'll come to, the, to Jesus and through Jesus to the Father. And the Father says, I think that's a good idea. And so you, you, have, you have the persons of the Godhead agreeing to assume roles where the Father tells the Son what to do. And the Father and the Son tell the Holy Spirit what to do. And, and then we find that these relationships were also present, although it's kind of, it's, it's in a way that you have to unfold, but, these, but it's there. We're not making it up. That, that these relationships were also present in Eden before the fall. So even before the fall, children would have been subject to their parents. And there would have been, I mean, Adam probably would have been like the exalted high president of all of humanity. And we would, we would be obeying Adam because he was the smart one. He'd been around the longest. He knew the most, right? You always want to be apprenticed to the guy in the shop that knows the most because that's where you learn what it is to be a good worker. Well, Adam would have been in charge and we would have followed him. These differences in authority, these hierarchies among human beings are there precisely because Human beings are made in the image of God, and in the interior life of God, we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit voluntarily and joyfully interacting one with one another in postures of unequal authority, and they delight to do so. And so God, when God says, let us make man in our image, and it says male and female, he created them, that's how we can have those relationships like the Trinity has within the context of marriage, within the context of the church later, and within the context of the civil society if we're doing it correctly. So basically, the persons of the Godhead said, even though we're equal, let's run our common life together as though we were not. And they're happy with that. 
and that glorifies God. And, and not only that, it, it's interesting um, that, that those who are, the, for instance, the Father, who is, commands the Son, also delights to glorify the Son and exalt the Son. He, he doesn't say, everybody look at me. He says, everybody look at Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, who is below, is equal to the Son, and yet takes a position of subordination, says, everybody, look at Jesus. And Jesus says, well, I'm only here to glorify the Father. And the Spirit, when he comes, he will bring me the proper glory that I deserve. And then everybody leaves the poor Holy Spirit out, but the Holy Spirit is the most wonderful and the most present member of the Trinity. And so we have this wonderful relationship that we could only have with God because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And we have a relationship with each other that can only be enjoyed because the Holy Spirit indwells all of us together. Now, we need to have a deep, deep understanding of this to make sense of the Christian life. Servanthood is not something that the Christian has to endure for a little while until we get to heaven. Servanthood is not an artificial condition that is imposed upon us to discipline us or break us. Servanthood was there so that we can become like God in our character because God is a servant. God is properly understood, actually, the ultimate servant. Now, that may sound weird to you, and maybe you're going, okay, I'm not so sure about this guy. Maybe we ought to get together a tribunal and uh, fire him, okay? But let me think about it carefully for a minute. Everything that exists exists and only exists because the Lord continues to uphold it in its existence constantly. That's the teaching of Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. And he rules it in its most minute details by his providence. That is what we just confessed in question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Everything that comes to you comes by God's providence and by his gracious loving right hand, even when it feels like duh. You know, even in the midst of that, he has not abandoned you or forsaken you. He's not somewhere off busy doing something else. He hasn't forgotten about you. This didn't come upon you by accident. He brought it. And as tough as it is to take it, he's walking with you through it. Okay? So in other words, God who upholds and rules the creation by his providence serves it. He serves it like parents serve a newborn baby. Feeding, clothing, protecting, providing, caring. Now, those of you that remember those days when you had a newborn baby, they are our most demanding and exacting boss, are they not? Everything in the whole house revolves around them and what they want and what they need, right? And that's appropriate for a while, right? But you are the servants of that baby because that baby can't do anything for himself. And that's good. And God deals with his creation a lot like that. He upholds it, he cares for it, he watches over it, he serves it. Jesus said to one of his disciples, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? So to see Jesus, to understand the nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the love of Jesus, is to understand the Heavenly Father. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11 tell us he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. So what's God like? A servant. 
God is a servant. Jesus is the concrete expression of the servant nature of the triune God. You might say to me and push back, it's fine. You might say God is a king. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is the ruler of us all. And he's the emperor of the creation. And all the creation should worship and serve him. And you are absolutely right. That is absolutely true. We owe all obedience to him. And it is our duty to glorify him. And yet God is a servant of you. Or you wouldn't get your next breath. He's a servant of you or you would not go to heaven when you die because of your sin. God is your servant. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense to me, because in the world, when a person has greater authority and power and money and position, they use it to aggrandize themselves and glorify themselves and puff themselves up, and they view others as less than themselves. They view them as tools to accomplish the purposes that they want done. And the Bible seems to indicate that God acts like that too. The Bible says, for instance, that he has all glory and all power and all authority, and that's true. The Bible says that he commands us to worship and glorify him and serve him, and that's absolutely true. Isaiah 40 says that he sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers in his sight, and human beings are obviously lesser beings than God, and owe him all worship and obedience precisely because of that, and that is true. You might say to me, Pastor, are you saying that God is also a servant even though all those other things are true about him? Yes, precisely that. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Luke 22 and verse 27. He said, among the Gentiles, they lord it over each other. He says, it's not supposed to be that way among you. Among you, the servant of all is the greatest one. So God serves us. Our salvation is only possible because he serves us and because he does it before we even thought to serve him. And that, friends, is what makes our God so astonishingly good, so astonishingly holy, so astonishingly worthy of our worship and our praise. This is his greatest glory. That this being would stoop to honor us and to protect us and to care for us and to provide for us, even in the face of our rebellion against him and when we deserve nothing but destruction to save us. That is his glory. That is his highest glory. So if you are going to be a Christian, if you're going to be transformed into Christ-likeness, you will have to become a servant. And that's true whether you're a husband or a wife. And that's true of any of these other roles of unequal power or authority that God has ordained for his people. That's true whether you're a boss or you're labor. That's true whether you're a mayor or a voter. That, that everybody is a servant if they're going to do it God's way. Anytime you hear someone say, I don't want to be a servant, I'm better than that. I deserve more than that. 
You're hearing somebody whose father is the devil. Their father isn't God if they say that. Their father is the devil. And if that's you saying those things, then you need to look to your own soul because it's probably in mortal danger. To be a servant is to be like God in a small appropriate way that it's appropriate for a human being to be like God. To be like a servant is to take on his character. Now, Christian marriage is primarily the place where we begin to live out these roles and flesh these things out. The first human society was a marriage. And as I've tried to show you from Genesis 2 and 3, even in Eden before the, wall, the fall, the husband was the head of his wife. And that's what it says here in this passage that we're studying today. The husband is the head of his wife. Now, the, the Greek word translated as head has two connotations. And they match our English uses of the word pretty well. The Greek word is kephale, and we get our medical terms like hydrocephaly or microcephaly or encephalitis from the word, from the Greek word. And uh, in its simple, simplest form, it just means head, as in the body part, your head from the neck up. But, but then it went from there to take on several other connotations, two of which are important for our purposes this morning. One is the idea of source, as in the English words, the headwaters of a river. That's the source of the river, okay? So the head is that out of which everything that comes after proceeds. It's the source. The other connotation carries with it the idea of rank or superior authority, as in headquarters or headwaiter or head of the company. And Paul is intentionally referring to both usages here. And I think it's really funny in the providence of God, we got the children's sermon we got. I didn't do that for myself, that came to me, okay? The husband, says Paul, is the head of his wife. Now, why is the husband the head of his wife? Well, first of all, because the wife was taken out of the husband in this first relationship. She was made from his body. He was the source of her. He came first. And so he was her head in terms of his body being the origin of her body. And therefore, he is also, in the biblical understanding, the head in terms of rank or authority. And God reinforces this in Genesis 2 by emphasizing that she was made to be a helper corresponding to him or fit for him or made to be strong where he is weak and weak where he is strong so that they complemented each other so that neither one was really sufficient by themselves. Okay? So she was made to be a helper corresponding to him because and, and God says, why? It's not good that he's alone. Why? Because he's not adequate to the task that God gave him, and therefore it wasn't good for him to be alone. Now, we need to understand something in the biblical view that's exactly the opposite of how we view things today. So if, if you were going to buy a computer, do you want the first computer that was ever invented, or do you want the latest model? Latest model. Why is that? Yeah, it gets better, right? 
we have, we have this understanding of the world that, that really came to us with Darwin in a lot of ways, that the world is just getting better and better and better. And it started with Darwin and, and the idea that, you know, here's this simple idiot life form that can't hardly do anything. And after millions of years of evolution, here's the, the great apex of the creation, us. And so our, our understanding is of progress over time, okay? And so you, you want the latest and greatest model. Well, in the Bible, that's a foreign worldview to the Bible. In the Bible, and also in the pagan culture of the time, what they understood was there was a golden age in the beginning, and everything kind of went downhill from there. And so the latest thing is much worse than the original thing. There's been a devolution, not an evolution, okay? And, 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 and the great hope of, for instance, the Romans was of a retrieval of that golden age where things would be back to the way they should be, okay? So the Bible, and, and in, of course, in the scriptures, that's exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for a return, more or less, to Eden. It'll be better than the original Eden, but it's, a, it's in many ways a return of Eden. In other words, the golden age will come back. Well, so in that understanding, that which came first is the best, and that which came after is less so. And the farther away you get from it, the worse things probably are in the biblical understanding. Okay? So you say, well, where did they get a dumb idea like that? That, that, the, that the origin of something or someone else has authority over that which came after. That the, that the first, just by virtue of being first and being the source, has authority over everyone that comes after or in some way conditions everything that comes after. Where'd you get a dumb idea like that? Well, they got it from God because that's how God operates. God, through the pen of the prophet Isaiah says, but, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work of your hand. So in other words, why does God have authority over you whether you acknowledge it or not? Because he made you. He is the source of you. So there's, a, there's an implied authority there if you, and we think of this ourselves here, you know, like I'm a business owner. I, I, uh, my wife and I together, uh, we, we made a business, but in, in this particular incarnation, it's been through several incarnations, but in this particular incarnation, it was really my vision and uh, my work and my mastering some technology and my going out and learning how to sell the thing and my relationships with utilities and farmers and all these other kinds of things. And, and so um, if, if something needs to be done in the business, who, who gets to say? Me. Why? Because I made it. I created it. And, and so I have authority over it. I have authority over any employees. We don't have any employees right now, but we used to. I have authority over any employees. I'm the one who says, yeah, I'll give it to you for that price, or no, I won't. I get to make those decisions because I am the source of the company. And God feels that way about you. And he feels that way about me. God says, I made you, therefore I have authority over you. Well, the, the corollary to that is, Adam and Eve and their condition has an authoritative lasting effect in understanding where we are and how things should be. So, so in other words, when we look at the way things were, that's how things ought to be now and we ought to strive 
as best we can is to, to get back to those things. And which of you mothers haven't said, for instance, to your disobedient children, you are only here in the world because I brought you into this world, and I brought you into this world with great trouble and pain. Look, here's the stretch marks. Those, that's your, you did that to me, and therefore you will do what I say. Right? You moms say that. And, and as we're going to see when we get into chapter 6, the same satanic principles that were used to attack the notion that the wife should submit to her husband are also being used to cause modern parents to doubt whether they have any legitimate right to exercise authority over their children. So Adam is the head of his wife because she was taken out of his body and she's subject to him because she was taken out of his body and because she was, by God's command, a helper to her. And you got to remember what Satan's rebellion said. His, his, his rebellious cry was, nobody tells me what to do. I will not fulfill the function for which I was created. I will not serve those whom I'm supposed to serve. I will make them serve me. And I will not submit to those who are supposed to have authority over me. Instead, I will try and take control for my own purposes, and I will take their place. I will usurp them. Now, Paul references this principle that the wife was made for the husband and was made out of the husband, and therefore that implies an authority. He references this principle in other places. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 12, Paul is dealing with the issue of head coverings in the Corinthian church. In that culture, that was an important issue of modesty and propriety, and it still is today among, for instance, Orthodox Jews and Muslims who their culture comes from that area of the world. That was a common understanding among the Mediterraneans, especially in the, in the East Mediterranean, that head coverings were important for women. Um, in that day, the only grown women who went around without their head covered were prostitutes. And they were women who emphatically had no man in their life to protect them and provide for them, but they also didn't have anybody that they had to submit to. And Paul in addressing some kind of situation in the Corinthian church where they were having an argument or a disagreement about this cultural practice, Paul says, for the man was not made from the woman, but the woman from the man. Neither was the man created for woman, but woman from man. And that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. In other words, a, a head covering. And again, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 15, Paul is dealing with the issue of who has authority in the church. And he explains why a woman ought to not teach or exercise authority over a man in the life of the church. And in verse 13, he specifically references the order of the creation. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now, that doesn't make sense to us today. The, the idea that somebody came first and somebody came second, and therefore the person who came first has some kind of authority over the person who came second, that, that's kind of a foreign concept to us today. But that's the biblical worldview. And we need to recover it. And we need to uphold it. And we need to understand it. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to have any kind of relationship of authority within the family at all, including with our children. And the state will step in and and they'll do what the state's trying to do right now and usurp the role of the parent with the child. And you're seeing this right now in places around the issue of transgenderism. The, the child decides they're transgender. The parent says, I do not support this. And the child then goes to the state 
through the child welfare agency and says, I'm transgendered and my mom and dad are dead naming me or, 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 or transphobic or whatever and they won't let me have my surgery and my hormones and all those things. And the state will step in now and has in Ohio and has in Minneapolis, Minnesota and in several other places, the state will step in and say, you are not appropriately caring for your child. You don't have any authority over this child to tell them what kind of person they should be and they get to be whoever they want to be and the state will make sure that they get to make that decision and even if that means getting them surgery, we'll do that. Now, the funny thing is they can't go get their ears pierced until they're 18. They can't take a Tylenol at school until they're 18, but they can go have gender reassignment surgery without the parent's permission. That is happening now. And that is a direct result of the rejection of this understanding that headship is implied over whoever comes after. It's the same principle. And so, is it any wonder that the first place that the enemy attacked all the way back in the 1800s was the historicity of Genesis 1 through 6? Where the enemy said, because, I mean, what are you going to do about this if um, there wasn't an Adam and there wasn't an Eve and there wasn't a, a, a time when there wasn't death and therefore there wasn't a fall? and death introduced into the world, and sin, and, and sin that we all inherit. What are you going to do when you reject all that? How are you going to explain uh, how things are supposed to work? You can't. I tried. I tried this on and walked around in it for a couple of years. It's a mess. And there are Christians today who keep trying it. And they say they're Bible-believing Christians, but they're pretty wishy-washy when it comes to this. You know, it's interesting, there's a, there's a lot of Christians right now because, once again, the intellectual credibility of the church is being attacked specifically on the issues of the historicity of Genesis 1 through 6. Everything from the creation through the flood. And, and scientists look at that and they just mock it. They, they just think it's absolutely hilarious that we're just, you know, Bronze Age fairy tales. You are living your, that's what they say, you are living your life according to Bronze Age fairy tales. What is wrong with you? We have science today that tells us who we are. We're turbocharged accidental monkeys. We have no purpose. There is no authority. You can structure your family any way you want because there's no right way to do it. You can be anything you want because there's no right way to do it. And Christians are going, well, I don't want the scientists to make fun of me. So I'll chuck the scriptures overboard and try and figure out how to still live a Christian life while I cut one of my own feet out from under me. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know, the funny thing is, they don't even realize it, but they're attacking the personhood of Jesus and the identity of Jesus because Jesus believed in Noah, in Adam and Eve, and Jonah, right? He referenced all those stories as though they actually happened in history. And if Jesus believed that and it didn't happen, well, then who is Jesus? Because he's mistaken about some things, apparently. So Jesus can't be who you think he is either. No, nobody, nobody's thinking that everything impacts everything else. It's all together, and it all works as a seamless whole. And the minute you start unraveling one thread, a bunch of other stuff falls apart over here. And pretty soon Jesus isn't God anymore. He's just a nice man who set us a good example. 
Now, why am I taking such great pains? And you may think, shut up now, pastor, I've got it. Why are you taking such, why am I taking such great pains to explain this to you? Because it is so relevant to our day. Even today, feminists in the evangelical church will say that the only reason that women were ever ruled over by men was on account of the curse in Genesis 3.16, where it says, where God says in judgment for Eve's sin, um, your desire will be for him and he must rule over you. They teach that the desire will be for the husband, but he must rule over you means that men in the fallen world will sinfully and inappropriately subjugate women to keep them from exercising their rightful gifts in an equal fashion as they would have before there was a fall. But since, in their minds and in their arguments, but since Jesus now reverses the curse, it's okay to have women pastors and egalitarian marriages. And so in their minds, the husband is the equal to the wife, and if they were going to be consistent with what it says in Ephesians 5, then they would also say, and thankfully they're not generally this consistent, thankfully they would also say that since the husband is the equal to his wife, Christ must then be the equal to the church. Because that's how they'd have to read Ephesians 5.23. Or since egalitarian marriages really most of the time are run by the woman, then the wife is the head of her husband as the church is the head of Christ and she is its savior. Now, does that work? Is the church the savior of Jesus Christ? No. Is the church the head of Jesus Christ? No. So that correspondence not only has to do with our natural world, it also has to do with what Paul tells us here in this passage, that there's, there's something going on that helps explain the relationship between Christ and his church, Christ and his people. So we have this problem here. And then you get to these other passages, and there's all sorts of gymnastics that they have to do around the other passages. Whether they realize it or not, they are twisting the scriptures in the service of a worldly agenda. And if anybody just wants to take all the relevant verses and put them on a sheet or two of paper and compare scripture with scripture, their case immediately falls apart. Because you have to do things like say, okay, Christ and the church are equal or the church submits to Christ, or Christ submits to the church, rather. The origin of male headship in the church and in the family is not the fall. It's not the sin. It's the creative purposes of God manifest from the beginning. And among the people of God, headship and submission don't imply sin. They don't imply automatic exploitation not when things are lived out as God intends, any more than a father automatically exploits the son or the son abuse, and the father together abuse the Holy Spirit or the parent's authority over their children is always abusive and exploitative. But that's what's being taught. You know, these people that say, you know, reject the patriarchy and overturn the hierarchy and question authority and all these other things that are being said today, what they're really saying is anytime somebody's in charge over me, or has authority over me, I'm being abused. And it's wrong. They're telling you it's wrong. And so if you carry that into your marriage, if you carry that into your parenthood, if you even carry that into your workplace, you're going to have anarchy. Can husbands abuse their wives and exploit their wives? Sure. And it's wrong. And it's sinful. Always. 100% of the time. 
Can parents abuse and exploit their children? Sure. And it's wrong. And it's sinful. All the time. Can men abuse authority over women in the church? Absolutely. It's wrong. It's sinful. All the time. But understand clearly, what the world is telling us in this moment is not that those relationships can go wrong, it's that those relationships are wrong. Unless one of them is in power. Because very often, that's the, that's the corollary that nobody says. It, it's it, it's that you should not have authority over anybody else. But I should! And they, and they want to run your world then, and they want to cancel you, and they want to get you fired and go through HR and all these things like that. Now, I've been at great pains to introduce this concept and to show specific application to marriage and the church. I, I, to me, it's unquestionable. If you're going to hold any kind of authority over the Scriptures, it is unquestionable that this is what the, church, what the Scriptures teach. But what about the rest of society? Does this mean that Christian women shouldn't be college professors? who have male students? Does this mean that Christian women shouldn't be CEOs or in middle management? Does this mean that we should not have a woman for president someday? Does this mean that Christian men should never have a female boss? Not at all. Not at all. I would be fine with a woman president as long as she wasn't Hillary Clinton, right? That's what she tried to tell you during the last election. It's, we don't want a woman. And I was like, no, we don't want that woman, all right? I would be fine. As a matter of fact, one of the people I admire most in this world was Margaret Thatcher. And I admire her almost as much as I admired Ronald Reagan. She was the best British prime minister since Winston Churchill. And none of the losers they've had since her has been her equal. And going back further in history, the people of God have been ruled and sometimes ruled very well by both kings and queens. We ought to thank God, for instance, that in the development of our culture and our history, that there was a Queen Elizabeth I. I don't know if you know anything about her, and I don't know if you know anything about the history of Britain during that time, but, but the Reformation never would have taken hold in England and then later on in Scotland if it had not been for Queen Elizabeth I. She was amazing. She was good. She allowed the Reformation to flourish in England, and she helped it to flourish in Scotland at a time when Scotland was under the rule of a wicked Catholic queen named Mary, Queen of Scots, who was doing everything she could to make Scotland Catholic again. Personally, when I worked in hospice, I had a female supervisor. She was my boss, and she was simply outstanding. Her name is Amanda, and I still count her as a friend, and I still call her from time to time for advice on subjects that she just knows so much about, and I learned so much from her about so many things, and I really appreciated how she managed me. It was a pleasure to be governed by her authority precisely because she understood how to handle authority so well. She was just awesome. Women, Properly understood and lived out, this will not diminish you as a person, this teaching will not. It won't rob you of your dignity. Properly understood and lived out, this will cause you to arise, arrive at a, a deep sense of peace and a feeling that at last you've come to the place that you were created for. But I have to also give you a word of warning. 
if this is going to be what you're going to obey and the, the way that things are going to go, then if you're in a position where you're not yet married and you're thinking about marriage, be very, very careful about who you will marry because the wrong man will make this a nightmare for you, either by failing to lead or by leading poorly and inappropriately or by misusing his authority. Women, do not marry a doofus. Don't do it. And, and you may not know that he's a doofus, but I guarantee your, your mother does, right? She'll look at you and go, mm -mm -mm, that boy's a doofus. Run away. I guarantee your father will, right? I'm on constant doofus patrol with my daughters. I've got shotgun shells that are specially made for doofuses. Yeah. Because I want my girls to be able to live a Christian life where they are properly cared for. And I have not always done a good job of this in my own marriage. As a matter of fact, very often I've done a bad job. I had a lot to learn. Nobody taught me. Nobody gave me advice. It used to be that you didn't marry somebody whether you were a boy or a girl, you didn't marry somebody unless your parents both signed off on it and thought it was a good idea, and maybe your grandparents too, because they understood the trajectory of a young man's character or a young woman's character and how that would make your life either wonderful and your spiritual growth with Jesus easy or it would make it incredibly hard and painful. It is better to not want what you have, or to have what you do not want. Let's try this again. It is better to not have what you want than it is to have what you do not want later on. And if you marry a doofus, that's what you're going to have. Except for a very limited set of circumstances, marriage is a lifetime commitment, and you cannot simply walk away from it because you're unhappy that you are reaping what you have sown by making a foolish marriage. So listen carefully to your parents and those who have been around the block a few times. Heed their advice. Heed their warnings. Because things that don't seem like a big deal now will be huge in 20 years. And they will be excruciating. So you need to find a man who understands what it means for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Otherwise, your submission to him is going to be painful, and it's going to be destructive, and it's going to be hard. Or it's going to be impossible. Because you can't submit to jello. It just takes the shape of whatever container it's in. You can't submit to that. And so you need to do this right if you've got an opportunity before you to do it. And you need to think very carefully about it because it's the key. Father, as we unfold these things further in a subsequent week, I ask, oh Lord, that you would give us your mercy. And there are times where decisions are about to be made that ought not be made. And there are times where decisions have been made that shouldn't have been made. And in your providence, this is where we're at. And you can always redeem those situations. And I pray that you would. I pray that you would save the unsaved partner or spouse. I, I pray, Father, that you would bring both in a relationship and a marriage into a place of honoring you and being what they were made to be. That the husband would be the head of his wife 
as Christ is the head of the church, and that the wife would submit to her to the husband as the church obeys Christ. And that in so doing, we would show forth your goodness to the world. It's in Jesus' name, amen.